Hello and welcome back to today's podcast. Uh, today I have part two of uh, Neville Goddard's fifth lecture or fifth lesson that he gave in 1948. And this was the last of the lectures that I have that he gave in 1948. And it's called Remain Faithful to Your Idea. And again, this is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, I would recommend going back and listening um, to part one of this podcast. But let's get into part two. And um, part two goes on to talk about the formula that Neville gives us or gave his audience for changing the future. Um, and that it, he had discovered it after years of searching and experimenting. So Neville continues in this lecture to tell his audience that the first step in changing the future is desire. That is, define your objective, know definitely what you want. So that's the first step. Secondly, construct an event which you believe you would encounter following the fulfillment of your desire. An event which implies fulfillment of your desire, something which will have the action of self-predominant. Thirdly, immobilize the physical body and induce a condition akin to sleep by imagining that you are sleepy. Lie on a bed or relax in a chair. Then, with eyelids closed and your attention focused on the action you intend to experience in imagination, Mentally feel yourself right into the proposed action, imagining all the while that you are actually performing the action here and now. You must always participate in the imaginary action, not merely stand back and look on, but feel that you are actually performing the action so that the imaginary sensation is real to you. It is important always to remember that the proposed action must be one which follows the fulfillment of your desire. Also, you must feel yourself into the action until it has all the vividness and distinctness of reality. For example, suppose you desire promotion in your office. Being congratulated would be an event you would encounter following the fulfillment of your desire. Having selected this action as the one you will experience an imagination, immobilize the physical body, and induce a state akin to sleep, a drowsy state, but one in which you are still able to control the direction of your thoughts, a state in which you are attentive without effort. Then visualize a friend standing before you, put your imaginary hand into his, feel it to be solid and real, and carry on an imaginary conversation with him in harmony with the action. You do not visualize yourself at a distance in point of space and at a distance and point of time being congratulated on your good fortune. Instead, you make elsewhere here and the future now. The future event is a reality now in a dimensionally larger world and oddly enough, now in a dimensionally larger world is equivalent to here in the ordinary three-dimensional space of everyday life. The difference between feeling yourself in action here and now and visualizing yourself in action as though you were on a motion picture screen is the difference between success and failure. The difference will be appreciated if you would now 
Visualize yourself climbing a ladder. Then, with eyelids closed, imagine that a ladder is right in front of you and feel yourself actually climbing it. Desire physical immobility boarding on sleep, an imaginary action in which cell in which self feelingly predominates here and now are not only important factors in altering the future, but they are also essential conditions in consciously projecting the spiritual self. When the physical body is immobilized and we become possessed of the idea to do something, if we imagine that we are doing it here and now and keep the imaginary action feelingly going right up until sleep ensues, we are likely to awaken out of the physical body to find ourselves in a dimensionally larger world with a dimensionally larger focus and actually doing what we desire and imagined we were doing in the flesh. But whether we awaken there or not, we are actually performing the action in the fourth dimensional world and will in the future reenact it here in the three dimensional world. Experience has taught me to restrict the imaginary action, to condense the idea, which is to be the object of our meditation, into a single act, and to reenact it over and over again until it has a feeling of reality. Otherwise, the attention will wander off along an associated track, and a host of associated images will be presented to our attention, and in a few seconds, they will lead us hundreds of miles away from our objective and point of space and years away in point of time. If we decide to climb a particular flight of stairs, because that is a likely event to follow the realization of our desire, then we must restrict the action to climbing that particular flight of stairs. Should the attention wander off, bring it back to its task of climbing that flight of stairs and keep on doing so until the imaginary act has all the solidity and distinctness of reality. The idea must be maintained in the field of presentation without any sensible effort on our part. We must, with a minimum of effort, permeate the mind with the feeling of the wish fulfilled. Drowsiness facilitates change because it favors attention without effort but it must not be pushed to the state of sleep in which we shall no longer be able to control the movements of our attention, but a moderate degree of drowsiness in which we are still able to direct our thoughts. A most effective way to embody a desire is to assume the feeling of the wish fulfilled and then, in a relaxed and sleepy state, repeat over and over again like a lullaby. Any short phrase which implies fulfillment of your desire, such as, thank you, thank you, thank you until the single sensation of thankfulness dominates the mind. Speak these words as though you addressed a higher power for having done it for you. If, however, we seek a conscious projection in a dimensionally larger world, then we must keep the action going right up until sleep ensues. Experience and imagination with all the distinctness of reality what would be experienced in the flesh were we to achieve our goal, and we shall in time meet it in the flesh as we meet it in our imagination. Feed, feed the mind with premises, that is, assertions pres presumed to be true, because assumptions, though false, if persisted in, until they have the feeling of reality, will harden into fact. To an assumption, all means which promote its realization are good. It influences the behavior of all, 
by inspiring in all the movements, the actions, and the words which tend towards its fulfillment. To understand how man how man molds his future in harmony with his assumption by simply experiencing in his imagination what he would experience in reality were he to realize his goal, we must know what we mean by a dimensionally larger world. For it is to be, or for it is to a dimensionally larger world that we go to alter our future. The observation of any event before it occurs implies that the event is predetermined from the point of view of man in the three-dimensional world. Therefore, to change the conditions here in the three dimensions of space, we must first change them in the four dimensions of space. Man does not know exactly what is meant by a dimensionally larger world and would no doubt deny the existence of a dimensionally larger self. He is quite familiar with the three dimensions of length, width, and height, and he feels that if there were a fourth dimension, it should be just as obvious to him as the dimensions of length, width, and height. Now, dimension is not a line. It is any way in which a thing can be measured that is entirely different from all other ways. That is, to measure a solid solid fourth-dimensionally, we simply measure it in any direction except that of its length, width, and height. Now, is there another way of measuring an object other than those of its length, width, and height? Time measures my life without employing the three dimensions of length, width, and height. There's no such thing as an, as an instantaneous object. It appears and disappears. Its appearance and disappearance are measurable. It endures for a definite length of time. We can measure its lifespan without using the dimensions of length, width, and height. Time is definitely a fourth way of measuring an object. The more more dimensions an object has, the more substantial and real it becomes. A straight line, which lies entirely in one dimension, acquires shape, mass, and substance by the addition of dimensions. What new quality would time, the fourth dimension, give, which would make it just as vastly superior to solids as solids are to surfaces and surfaces are to lines? Time is a medium for change or for changes in experience, for all changes take time. The new quality is changeability. Observe that. If we bisect a solid, its cross-section will be a surface. By bisecting a surface, we obtain a line, and by bisecting a line, we get a point. This means that a point is but a cross-section of a line, which is, in turn, but cross-section of a surface which is, in turn, but a cross-section of a solid, which is, in turn, if carried to its logical conclusion, but cross, but a cross-section of a fourth-dimensional object. We cannot avoid the interference that all three-dimensional objects are but cross-sections of four-dimensional bodies, which means when I meet you, I meet a cross-section of the four-dimensional you, the four-dimensional self that is not seen. To see the four-dimensional self, I must see every cross-section or moment of your life, from birth to death, and see them all coexisting. My focus should take in the entire array of sensory impressions which you have experienced on Earth, plus those you might encounter. I should see them not in the order in which they were experienced by you, but as a present whole, because change is a characteristic of the, four dimension, of the fourth dimension. I should see them in a state or a flux, as a living animated whole. 
Now, if we have all this clearly fixed on our minds, what does it mean to us in this three-dimensional world? It means that if we can move along time's length, we can see the future and alter it if we desire. This world, which we think so solidly real, is a shadow out of which and beyond which we may at any time pass. It is an abstraction from a more fundamental and dimensionally larger world, a more fundamental world abstracted from a still more fundamental and dimensionally larger world, and so on to infinity. For the absolute is unattainable by any means or analysis, no matter how many dimensions we add to the world. Man can prove the existence of a dimensionally larger world by simply focusing his attention on an invisible state and imagining that he sees and feels it. If he remains concentrated in this state, his present environment will pass away and he will awaken in a dimensionally larger world where the object of his contemplation will be seen as a concrete objective reality. I feel intuitively that were he to abstract his thoughts from this dimensionally larger world and retreat still further within his mind, he would again bring about an externalization of time. He would discover that every time he retreats into his inner mind and brings about an externalization of time, space becomes dimensionally larger, and he would therefore conclude that both time and space are serial, and that the drama of life is but the climbing of a multitudinous dimensional time block. Scientists will want to explain why there is a serial universe, but in practice, how we use the serial universe to change the future is more important. To change the future, we need only concern ourselves with two worlds in the infinite series, the world we know by reason of our bodily organs and the world we perceive independently of our bodily organs. I have stated that man has, at every moment of time, the choice before him which of several futures he will have, but the question arises, how is this possible when the experiences of man awaken in the three-dimensional world are predetermined, as his observation of an event before it occurs implies? This ability to change the future will be seen if we liken the experiences of life on earth to this printed page. Man experiences events on earth singly and successively in the same way that you are now experiencing the words of this page. Imagine that every word on this page represents a single sensory impression. To get the context, to understand the, my meaning, <coughs> you focus your vision on the first word in the upper left-hand corner and then move your focus across the page <coughs> from left to right, letting it fall on the words singly and successively. By the time your eyes reach the last word on this page, you have extracted my meaning. <clears throat> but suppose on looking at the page with all the printed words thereon equally present, you decided to rearrange them. You could, by rearranging them, tell an entirely different story. In fact, you could tell many different stories. A dream is nothing more than uncontrolled fourth dimensional thinking or the re rearrangement of both past and future sensory impressions. Man seldom dreams of events in the order in which he experiences them when awake. He usually dreams of two or more events which are separated in time, fused into a single sensory impression, or else he so completely arranges his single waking sensory impressions that he does not recognize them when he encounters them in his waking state. 
For example, I dreamed that I delivered a package to the restaurant in my apartment building. The hostess said to me, you can't leave that here. Whereupon the elevator operator gave me a few letters, and as I thanked him for them, he in turn thanked me. At this point, the night elevator operator appeared and waved a greeting to me. The following day, as I left my apartment, I picked up a few letters which had been placed at my door. On my way down, I gave the day elevator operator a tip and thanked him for taking care of my mail, whereupon he thanked me for the tip. On my return home that day, I overheard a doorman say to a delivery man, you can't leave that here. As I was about to take the elevator up to my apartment, I was attracted by a familiar face in the restaurant, and as I looked in, the hostess greeted me with a smile. That night, I escorted my dinner guests to the elevator, and as I said goodbye to them, the night operator waved goodnight to me. By simply rearranging a few of the single sensory impressions I was destined to encounter, and by fusing two or more of them into single sensory impressions, I constructed a dream which differed quite a bit from my waking experience. When we have learned to control the movements of our attention in a four-dimensional world, we shall be able to consciously create circumstances in the three-dimensional world. We learn this control through the waking dream, where our attention can be maintained without effort. For attention minus effort is indispensable to changing the future. We can, in a controlled waking dream, consciously construct an event which we desire to experience in the three-dimensional world. The sensory impressions we use to construct our waking dream are present realities. Displaced in time or the, fourth or the four-dimensional world. All that we do in constructing the waking dream is to select from the vast array of sensory impressions those which, when they are properly arranged, imply that we have realized our desire. With the dream clearly defined, we relax in a chair and induce a state of consciousness akin to sleep, a, st a state which, although bordering on sleep, leaves us in consciousness leaves us in conscious control of the movements of our attention. Then we experience in imagination what we would experience in reality were this waking dream an objective fact. In applying this technique to change the future, it is important always to remember that the only thing which occupies the mind during the waking dream is the waking dream, the predetermined action and sensation which implies the fulfillment of our desire. How the waking dream becomes physical fact is not our concern. Our acceptance, our acceptance of the waking dream as physical reality wills the means for its fulfillment. Let me again lay the foundation of prayer, which is nothing more than a controlled waking dream. Define your objective. Know definitely what you want. Construct an event which you believe you will encounter following the fulfillment of your desire, something which will have the action of self-predominant, an event which implies the fulfillment of your desire. Immobilize the physical body and induce a state of consciousness akin to sleep. Then mentally feel yourself right into the proposed action until the single sensation of fulfillment dominates the mind, imagining all the while that you are actually performing the action here and now so that you experience in imagination what you would experience in the flesh were you now to realize your goal. Experience has convinced me that this is the easiest way to achieve our goal. However, my, 
my own many failures would convict me were I to imply that I have completely mastered the movements of my attention. But I can, what the ancient teachers say, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize. Philippians 3, 13, 14. Again, I want to remind you that the responsibility to make what you have done real in this world is not on your shoulders. Do not be concerned with the how. You have assumed that it is done. The assumption has its own way of objectifying itself. Our responsibility to make it so is removed from you. There's a little statement in the book of Exodus which bears this out. Millions of people who have read it or or have had it mentioned to them throughout the centuries have completely misunderstood it. It is said, steep not a kid in its mother's milk. King James Virgin, thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. Exodus 23, 19. Unnumbered millions of people misunderstanding this statement to this very day in the enlightened age of 1948 will not eat any dairy products with a meat dish. It, it, it just is not done. They think the Bible is history, and when it says, steep not a kid in its mother's milk, milk and the products of milk, butter and cheese, they will not take at the same time they take the kid or any kind of meat. In fact, they even have separate dishes with which to cook their meat. But you are now about to apply it psychologically. You have done your meditation, and you have assumed that you are what you want to be. Consciousness is God. Your attention is like the very stream of life or milk itself that nurses and makes alive that which holds your attention. In other words, what holds your attention has your life. Throughout the centuries, a kid has been used as a symbol of sacrifice. You have given birth to everything in your world, but there are things that you are no longer that you no longer wish to keep alive. Although you have mothered and fathered them, you are jealous. You are a jealous father that can easily consume, like Cronus, his children. It is your right to consume what formerly you expressed when you did not know better. Now you are detached in consciousness from that former state. It was your kid. It was your child. You embodied and expressed it in your world. But now that you have assumed that you are what you want to be, do not look back on your former state and wonder how it will disappear from your world. For if you look back and give attention to it, you are steeping once more that kid in its mother's milk. Do not say to yourself, I wonder if I'm really detached from that state, or I wonder if so and so is true. Give all your attention to the assumption that that the thing is so, because all all responsibility to make it so is completely removed from your shoulders. You do not have to make it so. It is so. You appropriate what is already fact, and you walk in the assumption that it is, and in a way that you do not know, I do not know, no man knows, it becomes objectified in your world. Do not be concerned with the how, and do not look back on your former state. No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9.62 Simply assume that it is done, and suspend reason. Suspend all the arguments of the conscious three-dimensional mind. Your desire is outside of the reach of the three-dimensional mind. Assume you are that which you wish to be. Walk as though you were it, 
And as you remain faithful to your assumption, it will harden into fact. Okay, so that is the end of part two of remain faithful to your idea. And this is the end of the five lessons that Neville Goddard gave in 1948. So we will return um, in the next podcast and for I think it's 1954 lectures is where where we are going. You look. Yep, so uh, we will begin the next podcast with the 1954 lectures, I believe. So thank you again for joining me, and I will see you guys in the next podcast.